The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 3, the party of four, Kagan, Girios, Umura, and Soli, discovered a passage leading under the ruined tower. They followed it to its conclusion and discovered a pair of goblins and a human wizard. A battle ensued in which Kagan was magically blinded and nearly killed, and in which Umura fell under the thrall of the enemy wizard and tried to murder Girios. But fortune continued to smile on the group and they managed to prevail. The chapter concluded with the wounded party limping forward to investigate more of the secret underground place. Chapter four, part one. Day two, afternoon, status, solely. 4 out of 9 hit points. Kagan, 1 out of 8 hit points. Umura, 3 out of 5 hit points. Girios, 6 out of 7 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield. Kagan groped in the air. Soli? Where did he go? From beyond the door came the low voice of the dwarf. It seems safe enough. Come, someone help Kagan. The others entered the room and looked around. Before them was a more or less circular room about 20 feet in radius. Apart from the door they had come through, there were three other doors in the room evenly spaced apart. There were furnishings as well. An iron-banded trunk sat against a wall. A pair of empty crates being used as chairs had been set at a small table. A large oil lamp glowed from atop it, and the smell of the oil perfumed the room pleasantly although another alien odor lurked somewhere behind this one. The walls here were of stones and mortar. They appeared to match those used to build the tower above. Timber struts, thicker than those in the hall, crisscrossed the lower ceiling. The room looked to have been built a long time ago. Of the other doors in the room, one was of very thick oak, another of somewhat flimsy-looking warped wood. The third was only four feet high, as though built for dwarves or goblins. 
Soli pushed the trunk against the largest door, blocking it, and went to examine the one they had come through. It locks from within, he noticed aloud. He disappeared through the door and returned, dragging a goblin corpse behind him. He piled it unceremoniously beside the dead wizard's corpse and went out for the second goblins. On his return, he closed the door, shutting them inside. This was followed by a sound as he snapped the deadbolt into place. That should hold. Girios was taking charge of guiding Kagan now. He led him to one of the crates and sat him down. Tears were streaming down the fighter's cheeks and he was bleeding badly in several places. The cut in his knee was especially concerning, but Kagan stopped moaning and allowed the cleric to tend his wounds. Eventually, Girios pulled the fighter's hands away to examine his eyes. The strength of the enchantment was strong enough to brighten the entire room. Girios murmured a quiet prayer over his companion. He tore strips from his own shirt to use as bandages. And your wounds, Master Dwarf? inquired the cleric, briefly looking away from his patient. Soli shrugged and continued with his work. Umura went to the trunk as the dwarf searched the three bodies. She didn't want the others to see her face, and truth be told, she was only refraining from crying by sheer force of will. Her mind was a turmoil of shame, revulsion, and self-directed anger. How could she have let that man get inside her? How could she have let him take control of her that way? She had been violated many times over the past weeks, but somehow, this was worse than anything else. His enchantment on her had been so complete. She remembered everything so clearly, she wished she could forget. But no, she had genuinely wished Girios dead. She would have killed the cleric if he hadn't stopped her. Her fingernails were still red with his fresh blood. If only this wizard were still alive, she would make him pay twentyfold for the hurt he had caused her. She would do things to him. She would enjoy it. She would... She forced herself to snap out of it. Instead, she turned back to her examination of the trunk. She undid the single latch, lifted the lid, and peered inside. Find something useful? Asked Kagan through gritted teeth and staring straight ahead into nothing. He must have heard the lid creak open. It seems to be full of, well, these are manacles. She scooped her arm in and lifted a heavy handful of chains. Each chain terminated in a pair of iron cuffs. There are five sets and, let's see, four keys. Soli, how about you? Anything of use on the bodies? The sword is not too bad, he replied. And this club is sturdy enough, as we all know. He rubbed his head where the goblin had hit him. Ah, that's going to raise a lump, he muttered. <laughs> what else? This human had a rather fine dagger. I'll bet my beard the blade is silver. The dwarf turned the blade in front of his face and sniffed it. Yep, it's silver. He continued to rummage. There's some coin here, too. The goblins have, but... Twelve copper bits between them, but the human has gold. He held a shiny yellow coin up for the others to see. There's ten pieces here. Not bad. Umura seemed unimpressed. Anything else? A key ring, two keys, another key, iron, not of the ring. Three more belts with pouches. Again, the human's is a nice one. And of course, the human's robes. They would fit you, lady. Although Kagan did put a nice big hole in there. Hey! The dwarf stabbed the corpse's breast with a stubby finger and smiled a toothy grin at Kagan, who saw nothing but attempted a smile back all the same. The goblin armor is chain, a disgrace to any armorsmith, to be sure, but chain. 
Worthless to us, of course. It would barely fit a child. Hmm. What's this? Something in the human's pocket I hadn't noticed. Dermond was a man of means, and might have valuable items. I will roll for treasure of a value of 1 to 100 gold pieces. If the roll is more than a 95, I will rule that it is a minor magic item. Otherwise, it will simply be a valuable item of jewelry such as a ring, bracelet, or something else. The roll. I've rolled a 72. The dwarf raised a ring, pinched between thumb and index finger into the lamplight to get a closer look. There's a garnet set in this ring. The dwarf slipped it over his pinky. Hmm. Fritz, he said. You keep it, said Umura. Brings out the color in your eyes. Ha! The dwarf had an odd laugh. You're a funny lady. He didn't remove the ring. Just then, there came a knocking from the smallest door, and everyone froze in place. between the lines. Once again, my sincere thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore thus far. I hope you'll excuse the occasional bad edit or fumbled word here and there. These things take a long time to make, and it's just me at the spinning wheel, so to speak. That said, I do try my best to make quality content. If you have suggestions or gentle criticisms for me, they're more than welcome. Please comment or contact me at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. In this segment, I thought I would go a little deeper into an explanation of how I see this experiment in fiction working. Essentially, it comes down to finding the right balance between my decisions and interpretations of the dice, and sheer randomness and chaos. Since I covered the world of Merith in the last episode, let us begin by talking about creating a dark fantasy world. As far as I can see, there are really two ways to go about world building. One is to create your world and more or less flesh out the details in advance, and then let your story bounce around between the lines you've drawn. For example, if I decided in advance that there was a city to the west of the Kingswood, where our party now fights to survive, and if luck or logic eventually took the party west, assuming they survive, of course, then they would eventually find that city. To some degree or other, I would have already decided what the city was like, and perhaps who lived there. I suppose you can zoom the camera in as far as you like, but at some point you must limit the amount of detail you prepare. That's not how I've been handling world building in Tale of the Manticore. Actually, I've been doing the opposite. When the story dictates the need for a city to exist, such as the characters' backstories when they say where they're from or with whom they had traveled, I have simply made up something on the spot. But from the moment I invent the place or the person, it becomes a fixture in the world of Merith and, by degrees, the world is slowly becoming populated with places and people. Early on I realized I needed a map, and so I have begun one. This proto-map, which is more blank space than world at this time, is available with all the other materials on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com if you happen to be curious. This idea of making it up as I go, I think, fits the spirit of the experiment much better than the first method. On one hand, it does present speed bumps when I'm writing the episode. But on the other hand, it adds tremendously to the randomness and spontaneity I'm going for. 
On a related note, before letting too many episodes go by before I discuss it, I wanted to expand on my use of the basic D&D rules. Some of you may have already discovered one or two infractions. There may be some I'm unaware of, too. I freely admit to these crimes and beg the court for mercy, but let me explain. I have two guiding principles where the rules are concerned. First, I want to keep everything simple. That's the appeal of basic D&D. There isn't a chart for everything, and so much can be determined on the fly with a few rolls of the dice. Second, I want the choices to be logical. Just because the rules say a band of 20 orcs will make a morale check after the first of their number falls, that does not mean that it's logical those same orcs would consider running if they happen to be up against a single lucky archer. No, I would override that rule in a heartbeat. It doesn't make sense. I've prepared three quick categories that I hope will explain how I'll proceed with rules, and specifically random rules. The first category is rules I'll always follow, and rules I will always make. I'll always pull out the dice when it comes to character creation and stat rolling, any skills the characters use, like a thief's special skills, for example, and combat. For all of those things, chaos rules, and I will follow. The second category is about rules I will sometimes make. Things like weather and wandering encounters will often get a roll. I'll make the decision on whether they make the story more exciting or just slow it down as the situations arise. When my NPCs have to make a decision, I will sometimes roll if I feel there are a number of good choices for them to make, or perhaps if they aren't very intelligent. However, an NPC who has a brain in their head and a vested interest in keeping their skin will always act in the way that best serves them, so I won't be making any rolls if their choices are pretty clear. One last item for the sometimes category. The number of monsters present for a given encounter just like in a real game, I'm trying to give my players a certain level of challenge and danger. But if dice indicate a guaranteed TPK, or if the challenge is so small as to be boring, I'll adjust the numbers or re-roll. In the final category are things I will never roll. One is one of the most important aspects of D&D, namely player character decisions. I will always try to have the characters do what I believe they would do, given their individual motivations. The other thing I'll never rule is the vast majority of tiny details required to fill my fantasy universe. How tall is a character? How old? What color is their hair? Do they have brothers? Sisters? All of this stuff could be rolled, and maybe the purest version of my experiment in storytelling would do it that way, but I'm not going to. If I tried, I think the bus would never leave the station. In future between-the-line segments, I will continue to figure out and lay bare the mechanics of this game story mishmash. If this kind of thing isn't of interest to you, you can always skip past it and get back to the narration. But to continue my vehicular metaphor, if you'd like to see what's going on under the hood, you can expect more explanations, interpretations, and probably a few tough decisions in the future. And now, let's get back to that ruined tower in the Kingswood and see who's knocking. Chapter 4, Part 2, Day 2, Mid-Afternoon Everyone was startled, but it was Kagan who spoke first. What's going on, Umura? What was that noise? Easy, Kagan, she replied. Everything's fine. 
the magic user moved cautiously toward the small door. Who's there? came the muffled reply. Umura nodded to her companions and motioned for them to stand back, solely ready to his new short sword. Umura reached ahead and opened the door. There, in a cell no bigger than half a closet, was a young woman, barely more than a girl. Everyone in the party recognized her immediately. She was the girl who had abandoned them after the ogre attack the day before. There was a large purple bruise on her cheek that hadn't been there before. She was filthy, thin to the point of skeletal, and manacled in heavy irons. It didn't look as though she could slip free of these bonds, however. The iron bit into her skin at both wrists and ankles. Her huge eyes looked up in contrition. Please, she repeated. Have mercy on me, please. The party members did not know how to react. Clearly, the woman was no threat to them, but should they be feeling anger or compassion? As if reading their thoughts, she continued. I know I don't deserve it, but please, you, you're better than me. Unchain me, let me go. I will disappear and you need never see me again. I beg you. She raised her wrists, hopefully. We need to talk this over, said Umura. A shadow of distrust had darkened her face. And with that, she shut the door against the other woman's protests. Umura addressed the others openly. I don't trust her. I say we leave her to her fate as she left us to ours. Fight by me, said Soli, arms crossed in front of his chest. No offense, but with humans, words have little to do with truth. Girios made a face of consternation, perhaps a little offended at the remark, perhaps shocked by his companion's lack of sympathy. Out of the question, we simply cannot leave her here. At best, she would starve. No, that is not something I can do in good conscience. We could leave her some food, suggested Soli, shrugging. Leave her some... <laughs> returned the cleric. Dwarf, we have none even for ourselves, and besides, that's not even the point. We do have some water, though, said the dwarf weakly. Soli, I will wager the iron key you found fits that lock, said Girios. Kagan must have figured out what was going on, and now he joined the discussion. How about this? We can hide the key in the room before we leave. That would buy us an hour's head start, and we wouldn't have to worry about having an enemy at our backs. Why even do that? said Umura. She left us to die. That giant, whatever it was, might have returned and killed us all very easily. She sought only to save herself. Let us return the favor. Untrue said Girios. In fact, the opposite is true. This woman saved us and we owe her our lives. She did not have to give us that knife. He pointed to Kagan's knife, now lying on the table. She might have kept it for herself. Tell me I'm wrong. This observation silenced the room. Umura seemed to wrestle with her thoughts. Eventually, she nodded curtly. Fine, free the girl. Do we really want her with us after that? She did not ask to join us, replied Girios. She merely asked to be freed, but search your heart. You will know that allowing her to go off on her own would be the same as murdering her. These woods are full of danger, and to face them alone is almost certainly to find death. Umura opened the door. Come forward, girl. You'll have your freedom. But first, we would have your name 
and any information you might have about this place or this forest. I am Aradine of Rayford, she said, looking hopeful. The goblins took me a week ago from... Well, they killed my whole family and took me. I know nothing of this place and little of these woods. Using the iron key, the party released the young woman from her chains and led her to the other available crate, where she sat across from Kagan. Great gods, what happened to him? She wanted to know. The companions told her of the fight with the goblins and their wizard ally. They gave her small sips of water and they asked her many questions. Eredine had few answers. To Umura and Soli's frustration, Gyrios made the offer to Eredine that, if she chose, she might travel with the group until their safety from the woods was secured. Nobody gainsaid the cleric, and Eredine, having had a terrible experience in the woods alone, readily agreed. Privately, she intended to distance herself from them as soon as it was safe to do so. In the meantime, she would take advantage of the safety of their numbers. By degrees, the light coming from Kagan's eyes dimmed, and finally it disappeared. The fighter blinked and wiped away tears. Is it over? Thank the gods, you were right, he said to Gyrios. Unbeknownst to the party, directly beneath them some ten feet straight down, someone had taken notice of their intrusion and was monitoring their every move. This someone did not welcome their appearance in his home and was about to prepare a deadly reception. Dramatis Personae, Eridine. Eridine is a level one human thief. She has bright green eyes and long wavy auburn hair that frames a pretty face. Her skin is pale. A dusting of freckles decorates her cheeks. Eridine is very young, at just 18 years old. She has a willowy bill, weighing 105 pounds and standing five foot six inches tall. Eridine did not have an easy childhood. Hers was an unwanted birth, and she was given away as an infant to be raised by a foster family. Eridine has no idea who her real parents are. As she grew up, she moved from family to family, always working for her room and board. She earned her keep as a house servant at first, then a chandler's apprentice, and finally a barmaid when she gained her adolescence. It was at the inns and taverns that she first started filching small items to supplement her pitiful wages. It was also here that she grew to dislike men in general. Dislike them, but also see in them an opportunity. Almost all men who laid eyes on Eridine desired her. She soon learned that that was a kind of power. One night, while working in a small tavern named the Cracked Cask, one of the many nearly identical watering holes in the port town of Rayford, she met and was seduced by one Matty Swin. Swin was a sailor, mercenary, and sometimes highwayman. He was handsome, rich, and extremely charming. The two fell deeply in love, at least Eredine did. Swin asked her to come away with him and join his band of robbers. Eredine did not need much convincing, and she quit her job the very next day after meeting him. Over the year that followed, Eredine's eyes were open to all the pleasures that a life in crime, and a life with an experienced older man, could offer. Her joy during this period in her life made her turn a blind eye to the occasional cruelties and, after the first couple of months, frequent infidelities of Swin. 
the band of thieves and robbers began to teach her the skills belonging to rogues and involving her in more and more of their jobs. But it soon became apparent that she did not have the stomach to match their ambition. Petty thefts and robberies she could handle, but kidnapping and murder was something else. After a year with the band, Eredine found herself wishing to escape the life lived in shadow, but she could not leave it as easily as she'd entered it. She knew secrets that could harm the robbers. She was a fugitive in several towns, and worst of all, Swin regarded her as his personal property. She was eventually set free from the group, but it was not how she'd planned it. Their band of 13, they were mostly men, but there were a few women among them, had taken up residence in a cave system in the Brentwood. It proved an ideal place from which to raid nearby Brannan and even Wolfcliff Keep. The large city of Silmoral was not so far away, and that was a good place to fence stolen goods. Their hideout could be easily defended, and it was almost impossible to find for anyone who did not know where to look. But it was found. A large group of goblins, some of them attended by freakishly large and fast wolves, discovered their lair. Perhaps those big wolves had taken their scent. The enemy struck at the worst possible time, when most of their party was drunk and celebrating a recent haul. In the whirlwind of violence that followed, Eredine was taken prisoner. To her knowledge, everyone else in the group was slain. Some might have fled and survived, but after what she'd witnessed, she thought it unlikely. Eredine would like to go back to that hideout if she could. There's something hidden behind a secret panel in one of the walls. As for Swin, she's torn between, on the one hand, hating him and wishing him dead for having lost interest in her, and, on the other hand, holding out an unreasonable hope that he might yet live and learn to love her again. She knows he's bad for her, bad in general, but she cannot help how she feels. As for this new group, Eredine genuinely feels that she made the wrong choice when she neglected to set them free and went off on her own. Of course, time bore out the truth of that, and she was indeed captured and abused anew by the two goblin slavers before being dragged to the tower, locked in irons, and sold to a man named Dermond. Wrong choices seem to be all Eredine is capable of. The fact that these people did not seem to entirely trust her or want her around is a kind of proof to her that they're worth staying with. She resolves that if this group will accept her, she will not betray them. At least, she'll try not to. Well, she hopes she won't have to make that choice. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard, please consider leaving a five-star review for the show on iTunes. It helps a great deal. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. The following podcast is not intended for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The Iron Realm. When all planes of existence fall to ash, there is only one realm that remains. The Iron Realm. 
before you in all directions. Deep in the dark, there lies the maze. The Iron Realm! Millions of miles of corridors, caves, tunnels without end. This is the ultimate dungeon. Orcs, guys, kobolds, trolls. Ready your sword, your spells, your crossbow, your warhammer. The Iron Realm! Keep close, your companions, for they are your only hope for survival. Elf, fighter, wizard, cleric. There are no rerolls. There is no way out. Yet here, in the dark, if any of the merciful gods still remain, you may find the strength you need to fight. The cunning you need to hide and the luck you need to stay alive just a little longer. Iron Realm! Iron Realm! Iron Realm! I am your maze master, Abel Enzo. Get your dice and graph paper, and be sure to bring your friends. I'll see you in the realm. <laughs> Get the podcast at theironrealm.com or theironrealm.blogspot.com. There be dragons here.